at cabag.org. We will answer your questions or direct them to the appropriate person. You can also follow us on our website, churchatbriargate.org, and stay connected with us on social media. Have a great week. Well, good morning. So to give you an update on my wife, um, she did have surgery Friday. It went well. Everything is uh, good. In fact, it went quicker than they expected. Everything went fine. Uh, she can't put any pressure on her foot for six weeks. And uh, so we've, we've uh, we kind of set up a plan for her. She's, she's resisting the plan, I got to tell you. My wife is a doer. She's not a sitter. And uh, so she's, she's struggling a little bit. In fact, this morning around 4 o'clock in the morning, you could tell all that they blocked her foot and, and uh, given her a bunch of pain medicine. You could tell it all wore off. Um, she woke me up at four this morning. I need some narcotics. That's exactly what she said. And, uh, but she doesn't like to take narcotics, and she hates to wake me up. I, don't, I mean, it's not like something I've said, don't ever do that. But uh, she just hates it. It's just not how she thinks. And so for her to wake me up and ask for narcotics, uh, she was really in a bad place. And so, uh, but I did catch her yesterday afternoon because um, she was still plenty of drugs in her. She's supposed to sit on the couch, not supposed to do anything, but she got this little... Uh, scooter that she can put her knee on and, you know, scoot. and I come, I come out of been giving her things and doing stuff and I come walking in um, from down, from upstairs and she was doing little laps around the island in the kitchen with this. I said, what are you doing? Well, I can't sit still any longer. I said, you don't get an option on this. You have to sit still. And I mean, so I know now I have to like put a wheel lock or something on the, on the scooter, but she, she is doing good. She is, she's thankful. Some of you have already brought some uh, food and some stuff like that. And I'm, uh, she's thankful uh, for that. So I am actually very thankful for that. So, but, uh, but we'll let you know if we need anything or whatever. I think, I think we got it under control. Um, I, I asked her if she wanted me to get her a little bell to ring so I could come running. But she said, no, I have a phone. I can text you. I was joking. I didn't really think she needed a bell, but she thought I was serious with that. So, <clears throat> so turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. I, I'm going to, uh, this is a, this is a story that we pretty much know or at least some details, but I want to really break this down. We're going to go scripture by scripture with this this morning and, and break this down, but I want, to, I want to do some things with it, and I'm, going to, I'm actually going to kind of trick you toward the end or trick you and hook you at the end of this, but I'm telling you right now uh, so, that, so that it won't be like I tricked you. I'm going to trick you at the end of this. So <clears throat> with that being said, I want to tell you the motivation for why I'm speaking about this. This is, uh, this is something God's really been working on me about in a, in a handful of, of ways. And the idea of uh, what does it mean to truly serve God? What does it mean to, to say you're all in, those kind of things? I mean, those are things that I talk about regularly around here in different ways. But I, I've been thinking about this because I've caught myself getting um, lazy about some things. Okay, so, so here, let me explain it this way. I'll, I'll use one example. I'll use 20. But I, I, don't like, I don't like cussing. I don't like, <clears throat> I used to have a very foul mouth. In fact, when people say, you know, they cuss like a sailor, I was a sailor, I had a very foul mouth. Um, but then I became a Christian and I was still a sailor and I had a very clean mouth. So I'm also offended by that same statement. But the, the idea that, uh, of cussing, I, I don't like it. It's, just, it's stupid. First, it's just a sign of ignorance, in my opinion. But you can't use any other word but, a, but that. But either way. So, but what gets me is when I hear Christians cuss. There was a statement when I was a kid, people would say, when you'd say something you shouldn't say, and they would say, um, do, you, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Anybody ever heard that statement, remember that statement? 
This is the way I think about it in my head when I hear a Christian cuss, is you talk about Jesus out of that same mouth? I mean, to me, that's not a, those aren't reconcilable. Those, those really are not the same thing. You shouldn't. They shouldn't be in the same category. You cuss, but then you talk about the creator of everything, the perfect holy God of everything. So, so that's just a, a thing for me. It's just an irritant for me is, is when I hear Christians cuss. So I don't like it. I know it's not. I don't, Jesus doesn't like it. He talks about it in the Bible. He's not okay with it. Um, <clears throat> but it's amazing how we justify those things. So, so this is where it gets me is <clears throat> I, uh, I catch myself becoming much more relaxed about that, lazy, uh, overlooking it when it comes to TV, movies, and stuff like that. Now, my disclaimer, my excuse is it's becoming almost impossible to connect with something in any kind of media setting, Hollywood, movies, TV, anything, that, that there's not cussing in it. It's almost impossible. And now, the, now that Netflix is, we, I don't really watch TV per se. Uh, so much I do some, but it's very minimal. But I do watch uh, Netflix a lot. We'll watch series and stuff like that on Netflix. That's a worse place. It's much worse. It's much more challenging to find something on Netflix that doesn't have blatant cussing and nudity and all kinds of stuff like that. And so I catch myself, not about the nudity. I, I draw a line. I'll turn the TV off or whatever. But I, I deal with cussing. It's just becoming more and more. And my wife doesn't. My wife will not. In fact, we'll be in a movie theater. And... <clears throat> Somebody will cuss on the screen, and she'll yell out. This is in a movie theater. She'll say, oh, did you have to say that? And I'm like, Linda, shh. Turn on your cell phone. <clears throat> so they'll kick you out of here. So, but, but that's the thing with me is that the Lord's really been convicting me. I was, why, am I, why do I get lazy about certain things? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that to trap you later, just right up front about that. Okay, so let me ask you some questions. What does it mean to truly serve God? <clears throat> ask yourself. This is not, I mean, you really uh, process that question. What does it mean to truly serve God? Because you'll either go one of two places. You'll either go to a spiritual dynamic or you'll go to an, an action-oriented, some kind of works dynamic of that. And, and by the way, just so that, that we're clear about that, it's not an either-or. The, the idea that sometimes some parts of evangelical Christianity have taken the idea of doing things, in other words, works, um, that that's somehow completely separate from a Christian lifestyle or a Christian world, it's just not true. Okay, it's just not. Uh, you, you can't get saved by doing things. Salvation only comes through grace in God. You can't get saved by doing things. But if you're a Christian, you will be doing things for God. You will be doing things for people. You will. You will be doing works if you're a Christian. Um, James tells us that. In fact, he says your Christianity is dead if you're not. You don't have a Christianity if you're not actually doing stuff. John tells us that if you're not doing what the Lord has told you, if you're not being obedient to him, you don't even love him. And so the idea that somehow works is completely separate from a Christian walk, Christian life, it's just not accurate. It's not true. It's not how you get saved, but that is how you stay saved. You're doing the things that God has told you to do and being the person, all that. So with that, you'll have one or two things, but it's really a blend of the two. The spiritual side and the, and the, the action, physical oriented side. Um, what, what, how, how do you serve the Lord? How do you define that? What does it mean to truly serve God, be committed to Him? And, and here's the next question is when is that compromised in your life? Now be careful when you say, oh, it's never compromised in my life. If that's true, 
If your spiritual walk and your action walk and your entire existence in relationship to God has never been compromised, then we might as well hang you on the cross because you can forgive our sins. That's just reality. That means you are sin-free, and that's not possible for a human being. So when is that coming? Not is it compromised, but when is it compromised? You know, I'm, I'm saying this so that you'll think through these things. When is this compromised? When, when in my life right now is, is my walk with the Lord compromised? What are the things, the mindsets, the directions, or whatever that, that compromises this? And here's the next question, is what would your life look like if you were all in with the Lord all the time, all in, all the time, 100%? It would look different. It would. We have to own that. Every one of us here has to own that. Our lives would look different if we were all in all the time. It doesn't mean that, you're, that you don't want to be or whatever. This is not, I'm not assessing whether you want to serve Jesus. I'm just saying actual reality. What would our lives look like if you were all in all the time? Completely 100%. So again, like I said, God's really been working on me about this in a lot of different ways. Some things that I know that... that, um, that that are not okay, that are not right, that God has been saying, okay, Scott, you need to change this. You need to do something about that. Have you thought about this? Have you processed this? Now, again, I'm not going to use, except for, you know, the, the cussings, watching TV and stuff, I'm not going to use examples because the more examples I use, it actually dis- dissuades you from legitimately analyzing your own self because you'll begin to justify or not justify those in my own, in my life. You'll look at me, and that's not my goal. I want you to really analyze what what about some things? Where are some things that I've compromised? Where are some things that need to be different in my life? That um, What would my life look like? That kind of thing. And so, so with that, let's go to Genesis chapter 19. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want to give us a little bit of background because this all plays into it. And I'll, I'll reference these, these background elements um, a little bit throughout this. They're referenced in the story, and we'll bring those up. But Abraham, he says to Lot... Um, Lot, you get to choose wherever you want. You know, he's sitting on the mountainside, and he says, Lot, choose whatever ground you want. And Lot chooses the most plush, fertile ground on the plain, okay? Which is interesting to me because, to me, there's already a problem with that. It's not just that Lot chose the easiest way out, but there was something in his heart. There was some kind of, there had to have been some rebellion going on already. Now, this is part of the reason I think this is because of the way I was raised, and if you don't think this way, I, I think you need to analyze, you need to really process what it means to be, I think this is a man issue, I think this is a gentleman issue, that kind of thing. Abraham's Lot's older uncle, and he says, Lot, you get to choose anything. Why didn't Lot say, no, Abraham, I defer to you. I am the younger, you're the elder, you should choose what you want first. Why didn't he make a bigger deal about that? Why didn't he go there? Or if he says, if Abraham says, no, Lot, I'm going to let you choose. Okay, then I choose the less healthy ground. I choose the more difficult lifestyle. I choose the more difficult plan or walk or whatever. The fact that he did not defer to Abraham, there's problems with that all over the, the place. Okay, that's, that's already an issue. Then the fact that he chose the plain and he chose it down by Sodom. Now, maybe he didn't know about Sodom at this point, Right? The next thing that Abraham does um, in, right before this story unfolds is God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, will you not destroy it if I can find righteous people? And he starts going through numbers. You know, I don't remember exactly, like 50, 20, or whatever. And, um, and, and then he gets down to, uh, I think, 5 or 10. I don't remember. But um, so here's the thing that gets me with this story is, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to look at it from a little different side 
is I believe that one of the reasons that Abraham doesn't go all the way down to one, because I think he stops at five, but he doesn't go all the way down to one, is because I believe that he wants to believe the right thing about Lot, but down in his heart he knows Lot may not make the cut. I think that's part of what's going on here. Because he keeps taking God farther and farther down, and God seems to just agree with whatever he says. Okay, for 10, okay. And then why doesn't he say, if I can find one righteous person? Now, we're going we're gonna to finish all of this on that mentality uh, right there. But let's go to Genesis chapter 19. Let's look at this, verse 1. That evening, two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there. You already noticed a problem? When Abraham said to Lot, Lot, what ground do you choose? He chose the plains down there. But that's not where he is when we get to this story. He's actually in Sodom. So that means over a period of time, establishing his, his uh, ranch, his goat ranch, whatever he had, establishing his ranch, doing all the stuff, setting up house, making money after time frames, years of this, eventually he makes a conscious decision to move into Sodom. And we see where he actually has a house in Sodom, and he, that's where he is now living. Now, here's the deal. There's no possible way that he could not have known what Sodom really was when he actually decides to move in there. There's no possible way. He had to have known all the stuff. And one of the reasons is because because these guys are so over-the-top perverted that you'll see that they would have tried something similar to, to Lot somewhere along the way. So Lot had to have known how perverse and evil Sodom was, and yet he has a house in Sodom. Not out on the plains where he was, but he actually has a house in Sodom. He has decided to live there. And that's the theme through this whole story. Actually, that is the overriding theme through this entire thing, and that gets missed sometimes with this. <clears throat> Lot was sitting there. When he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed, his bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my house to wash your feet and be my guest for the night. And I think the reason he's saying this is because he knows what, what could happen. He knows the potential of how bad this can get. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh, no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. Bad idea, guys. And Lot knows it's a bad idea. Because he knows this city. And yet he's still living in it. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread, made without yeast, and ate. It is interesting to me that, that Lot is still going by the Jewish law of unleavened bread, but nothing else in his life is matching up to that spiritual mentality. Nothing else is matching up. He is going through the form and the function of his religion, but there is no actual depth and connection to God in his life whatsoever, as we see through the rest of the story. Before they retired that night, all of the men of Sodom, that's an important statement, all the men of Sodom, Young and old came from all over the city and surrounded the house. And they shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. In other words, we're going to rape them. We're not asking for their, their permission. We're going to rape these two guys. It says all of the men of Sodom, young and old, we're going to rape these two men. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. 
Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you. That, guys, that makes no sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. But here's the theme that you're going to see through this. When, when you begin to make wrong decisions and bad decisions, and they lead you closer and closer to sin, even though it does not appear that Lot has become perverse like these men of this city, he is connected to it enough that he is willing to sacrifice his two daughters to this, this, this horde of men out there and say, you can have your way with them. Do whatever you want with them all night. Do whatever you want. He is so debased already connected to the system that he's willing to, to, to do this with his two daughters. <clears throat> he said, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. Please leave these men alone for they are my guests and under my protection. The first time that I recognize this kind of concept, that, that even, if, even if you're not actively sinning, which I would, I would argue that there's no way you can really there's too much involved here as we get further into this. Lot was connected to some of this stuff at some level. He had to have been. He could not have not been. And, and the fact that you're going to sacrifice your two daughters to these men, now maybe, this is so thin, maybe he's saying, well, they don't really like girls, so I don't, that's pretty thin. I think he is literally taking a chance that, th that this pack of men are going to be raping his daughters all night long. The first time that I came across this, the way spiritual things work and the way spiritual things attach to you and stuff like this, I mean, and it's always happened with my existence, but I didn't know it. I didn't see it and recognize it. I was in college. This is my second year of college, and I transferred to Bible college I was going to, the one my daughter's at right now. And, uh, and I worked um, at a restaurant in Dallas, <clears throat> and I would get in my Pinto, and I would head into Dallas, about a 30-minute drive every time. And my Pinto didn't have crazy things like uh, radio or um, air conditioning or things like that, and so it was a very me time, just me and the sound of wind in my hair. And so I, I would drive, and I would pray, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to serve God. I'm really wanting to serve God probably for the, for the first real time in my life, and definitely at this stage of my life, I hadn't been serving the Lord at all before this. And I'm, I'm trying to serve God, and I'm praying, and I would spend the entire 30, 40 minutes going into this restaurant that I worked at, and I would, I would pray. I would pray in the Spirit, and I just wanted to be a witness. I wanted, to, I wanted to, to do something for the Lord. I wanted to be His and those kind of things. And then I would work at the restaurant, and, and all kinds of stuff would happen. It wasn't like it, this was a bad restaurant. It was just a normal restaurant. But but it's just, and this is the part that I didn't realize was there's a lot of stuff going on. And even though there wasn't something overtly like um, that you could see or explain that was bad. I mean, sometimes there were, but the, the idea of when I, on my way home, I would feel totally different than when I got there. I would feel dirty. I would feel covered. I would feel disconnected. And I would pray and I'd begin to pray and pray and, and repent and anything I could think of. I hadn't done anything, but I would just pray and pray and pray. And by the time I would get the 30, 40 minutes back, it's like I was free again. It's like I was clean again. I would pray in the spirit. That's the biggest thing. And I would feel like I was clean again. I couldn't understand that. I didn't, I didn't immediately recognize it um, as simply as I'm explaining it now. 
But after a while, I began to realize there's spiritual stuff that's going on constantly around us, and it was so demarcated for me at that moment that I recognized it in a way that I couldn't before. And, and to, to realize all the things and the stuff and that was going on. I, I'll give you an example of just, I could give you 30 of this, but one example of this. I, w- I would be, I was a 19-year-old guy at that time, and uh, I, would, um, I would be propositioned all the time by 30, 35-year-old women, constantly. Now you tell me, what kind of normal 30, 35-year-old woman is truly attracted to a 19-year-old punk. And I looked 12. I would love to have looked 19 at 19, but I didn't. Now you tell me why. Because that's, there's something wrong in her mindset. There's something wrong in her thinking. She's not actually attracted to me. There's a spiritual thing going on. There's something else that's happening there. There's a physicalness. There's a sexualness. There's something going on there that, that is not normal for a woman to think like that, to process like that. So that means there's a spiritual context for all of this. And that's the part I couldn't, until literally a few years later, and I'm processing this, I'm thinking through all of this, and, and it began to dawn on me, this was a spiritual thing, that there was, there was there's spiritual, and spiritual things going on with us, to us, around us at all times. And a lot of times we haven't uh, uh, set ourselves up to see it, understand it, process it. But Satan is constantly trying to do stuff. Now, here's the thing, is if you make any steps in the wrong direction in those spiritual moments, you're actually letting all of that stuff that's around you begin to grab onto you. And it starts to pull you. It starts to pull you into what Satan is trying to do to your life. And I believe this is what is going on with Lot. And that's why that he could literally offer his two daughters up to this, this pervert crowd. Because he had already let this stuff get too much into his existence. Verse 9, the crowd says to him, stand back. This fellow came to, the, this fellow came to town as an outsider. Talking to, about Lot. This fellow came to town as an outsider. Now he's acting like our, our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. <clears throat> and they lunge toward Lot to break down the door. It's also interesting to me that, the, that Lot said, don't do this, and the crowd translated that as, you're judging us. Sounds familiar in society today, doesn't it? That all you have to do is say, I don't agree with that. You're a hater. You're a bigot. No, I, I don't agree with that. You're a homophobe. You're, you're holier than thou. No, I just, my Bible says I'm not supposed to be doing it. But this is where we change the language today, and we make a villain out of somebody that's actually trying to do the right thing. Okay, so, so that's the same thing that we're seeing with this. So they lunged toward Lot, but the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. And it's interesting to me that it said that Lot had closed the door. He walked out and closed the door, and the angels reached out and grabbed him. I'd like to have seen that moment. I think that was like pulling through the door kind of thing. I don't know. <clears throat> so then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? Like they didn't know. They asked, get them out of this place, your sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we are about to destroy, destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So here's a question theologically you might want to process, because I believe this applies in, in so many ways today that we don't think about. Um. When it says, the angels say that the outcry 
is so great it has reached the Lord. Who's out crying or crying out? Who's doing this? It's not the people in Sodom. It's not the people in, in Gomorrah. It's not the people in the surrounding cities. Who's crying out? See, I think there's a spiritual dynamic that happens here where, where there, are, there are angels, demons, all this other kind of stuff that we see where Scripture describes, but I think there is a spiritual outcrying to God that we see consistent through Scripture that when sin gets so bad and evil gets so bad that there is an... Let me give you a little Scripture that kind of makes sense. And I do believe this is what the Scripture is talking about, although we use it improperly, usually. In, in, when Jesus is in the New Testament, and he, he, I mean, he was in the New Testament, but when Jesus says in the New Testament um, that if, if they don't worship me, even the rocks will cry out. I've talked about this before, that even it says that all of creation is groaning, waiting for the coming of the Lord. That creation itself cries out and says, this is not okay. Now, I don't understand that. I understand that on a... Um, on a rational level, I understand it on a, on a word level that you can describe that stuff, but I don't know how creation, the planet itself, I don't know if that's what, exactly what it's saying, although that's the term it uses, that it cries out to God. And, and these two angels have said, God's heard the cries, and he's done with this. And so he says that there's, it's about to be destroyed. Now look at this. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. Now, here's another question, and I think it's one of those sowing and reaping things. It appears that his, son, his daughter's fiancés, they're not even married into the family yet. They're still trying to impress dad. And they don't have any respect for his word. He doesn't bring any legitimacy to them. He's, he's, he's begging them. You've got to understand this. And they think he's joking. Because they don't respect him any more than he respected Abraham. He can't convince them. And see, again, this is, the, this is the context of the way I was raised. It's just different. My father-in-law, no matter what he would ask of me right at this moment, I would do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I think it's good or fun or I like it or whatever. If my father-in-law said, I need you to do this or, or, or can you take care of this, the answer would be yes. It doesn't matter. It is disrespectful to my elders and specifically my wife's father to say no. I would do it. I can give you plenty of examples. I showed up one time at his house. And uh, Linda and I had just been married a couple years. And I showed up at his house and there's a big ladder sitting against the house and a bunch of cans of paint on the ground. And I get out of the car and I say, hey, you, you about to paint the house? He said, nope. And it clicked in my head. I said, Am I about to paint your house? He said, yep. You're going to be here a couple days. You ain't got nothing to do. Guess what I did? I painted his house. I showed up another... That's happened to me twice, by the way. I showed up at another time, and he's, he's got this new tool set sitting there on the cabinet, and I walk in his garage, I'm like, this is nice. He goes, I want to show you my new tools. I was like, that's cool. I didn't know you were really a mechanic, but all right. So... You go into the garage and look at these, and man, these are all nice new tools and all this kind of That is really cool. Have you, have you used them for anything yet? No, I'm waiting for you. I said, what? He said, my van's not working. You're going to be here a whole week. You ain't got nothing to do. I never even thought in my head, argue with him about this. Tell him I don't want to. Tell him I'm busy. Never would have come into my head. 
And to this day, if he needs something, and I've worked on his car 20 times over the years, 20 different cars. Because why? That's my father-in-law. Now, here's my question. The father-in-law, not even yet, father-in-law comes to these guys and they don't agree. They don't even believe him. He doesn't even have credibility with those guys, much less anybody else. Because I've heard before that people say, well, the story of Lot's a good story. You know, he was in Sodom, living for God and trying to turn the tide and trying to change the city. Was he? Was he really? Is is that what he's in, in Sodom doing? Lot's trying to be God to a godless people? Is that what's happening? Is there everything I see in this city in this story is Lot is compromising, compromising. Let me let me show you, let me continue. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels become insistent. At dawn the next morning, he the angels just told Lot, I am gonna wipe this city off the face of the planet. You need to do something. You need to get out of here. Go get your family and get out of here. He goes and tries to get some of the family, they don't leave. And so what does he do? He goes to sleep. How do you do that? How can you consciously say, well, I think I'm going to take a nap. He just said he's going to destroy the city. Now, it's the next morning. It's, it's literally the next day, the next morning. The angels are insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. That means he had more that were not there. Take the three women in this house and get out of here. You've already gone and warned the rest of your kids. They're not listening to you. You better leave now. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. Verse 16. When Lot still hesitated. Why did Lot hesitate? Because there's something else deeper going on here. He's attached. He can't leave. He can't leave. And that's, I think, it is even feeding into the fact that his, that his almost sons-in-laws didn't believe him because his heart was not in this. The angels are saying, these are angels. These aren't just some guys. These are angels, and they're saying, we're, we're going to destroy this place. You understand that. This place is done and, and then after, this is the third moment of this, Lot still hesitated because his heart had attached. His mind, his spirit was attached. He couldn't let go. He was willing to give up his daughters. And See, in my, in my opinion, I shut the door and I say, okay, anybody comes in this house, you're a dead person. And the next day, I'm out of there. After willing to sacrifice his daughters to these guys, he still couldn't leave. He was attached. It was part of his existence. When Lot still hesitated, the angel seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them, drugged them out of the city. Drugged them out of the city. Why? Because they were attached. They didn't want to go. Here's the key to this. That's why when somebody says, well, you know, I think Lot was being a light in a dark city. No, he wasn't. He wasn't being anything in this city. The angels are literally dragging him out of the city. Now, here's another thing that you may read in commentaries of the way people approach this story. Well, that's proof that Lot was a godly man because these angels were dragging him out of the city. There's problems with that on a few levels. One is they're dragging him out of the city. 
He's not running ahead of them saying, no, wait, keep, we want to keep up. Humans run faster than angels, which I don't think is true, but either way. So this is, they're dragging him out of the city because he's still attached to the city. They're not saving him because of his relationship with God or his righteousness or anything else. I strongly believe, and I think I can prove this here in a little bit, the reason they're saving Lot at this particular moment is because somebody else, Abraham, is standing in the gap for Lot. Now, this part of the story resonates with me pretty strongly. There, there was, there was a, a, a great period of time in my life when I was not serving God. I was very anti-God. And, uh, and I, but I had people praying for me, specifically a grandmother that prayed for me every day. And I knew she was praying for me. She would tell me that. And she was praying for me. And I believe that, the, and while I know there are times when, when, I don't know how this works physically, but I do know it works spiritually, so therefore it, it um, culminated physically, where an angel literally, or the Spirit of God or something, would literally grab onto me and pull me out of something. I know that. And it's not because I had a heart to not want to be involved with it. My heart was attached to these things, but, but God would pull me out of certain things, and I know it's because my grandmother was praying for me. And God rescued me sometimes from things that I deserved to go down with. But God rescued me because I had somebody praying for me. So they drag him out of there, and this is what it says. They rushed him to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. Not because Lot was a great guy and serving God and doing all that stuff, but because the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Verse 18. Oh no, Lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to save me and save my life and you have shown such kindness, but I can't go to the mountains. Disaster will catch up to me there and I would soon die. I can't go to the mountains. I won't be able to make it there. There's a term nowadays that I really like. It's called snowflake. Lot's being a snowflake right here. I can't make it in the mountains. You don't know. I've been living in the plains, and I just can't make it in the mountains. Now, let's look at all the details here. Who is living in the mountains? Abraham. He's been living there for years, and he's making it, but Lot can't make it in the mountains. Why? It has nothing to do with the mountains. It has to do with his heart is still attached. He's still connected, and he can't let go. He can't do this. And so again, now this guy, th these angels are literally saying, you better hurry. Run, don't even turn around and look. I am going to destroy this place. And he's begging and arguing again. See, it's somewhere. The angels didn't have the authority to make the decision, obviously. God told the angels what to do. But at some point, you know one of the angels looked at the other and said, this dude is not worth it. I don't know what God is seeing in this guy. We should let him burn and tell God he tripped. Right? Isn't there something there? I mean, how much do you have to beg somebody to rescue them? Now, the answer to that for all of us, and I know for me personally, is sometimes you've got to beg somebody a lot to rescue them. And it's amazing that God says that he is merciful enough to do it. I love this part of the story, that God just keeps working with Lot here. And basically, the marching orders for the angels were, you get him out of there no matter what. You, you, you drag his rear out of there. Because that's what they did. So again, he's arguing. 
So then he says to the angels, see, there's a small village nearby, but please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. Well, if this is such a good option lot, why didn't you choose that first rather than moving right into Sodom? See, it says, we're going to read this in a second. It says that God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and all the surrounding villages. But, but the angels let him go to this small village nearby named Zor. So my question is this, what did it look like after it was all done? God burns up the ground and every vegetation, everything. What does it look like? Is there just a small little circle of one village saved right in the middle of this? Because that would speak pretty strongly, I think, to pretty much everybody, but specifically Lot. So they let him do it. All right, the angel agreed, I'll grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry. Escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive. This is why the village is known as Zoraz, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. You want to know something that's really cool, just as a side? Um... It says that the sun is, is coming up over the horizon, and she turns to a pillar of salt. You know, that's in mythology writing today. That's what happens to um, trolls. Is it trolls? No, it's, um, yeah, trolls. Trolls. I just thought I'd throw that out there. You're like, does that matter? It has nothing to do with anything. So here's a question I would like to ask, and I do have a posit for this, but um, Lot's wife has turned to him a pillar of salt. Why didn't God turn her into something else? Anything else? A tree? A goat? God had a history of doing that. Turned, turned um, Nebuchadnezzar into a goat. So why does God choose a pillar of salt here? Now, here, here is just a basic idea that I think that we can grab. There, there could be a lot of other reasons. I've actually read some. But here's what I think. See, it says that God burned up all of this area, all the ground, everything. There was no vegetation, just a burnt. You, you've seen what it looks like when a forest fire comes through and burns everything, the ground's black and everything. And then the, the next spring, all of a sudden, things start sprouting up in the middle of the burn. In fact, a good burn is actually healthy for the planet, regardless of what the environmentalists say. A good burn is very healthy for the woods and things. It's just not healthy for the people's houses in the woods. But it's good. So all of a sudden you start having vegetation grow up and things like that, and you have life all over again because that's who God is. But where Lot's wife was standing when she got turned to a pillar of salt, it's going to be many, many years, decades before that little spot of ground is going to grow something ever again. Because that salt's going to melt over time, and it's going to go onto the ground, and things don't grow in the middle of salt if you say, what, are you sure? Yeah, go to Utah. Things don't grow in the middle of salt. And there's going to be a little area right there that, that long after the statue of who she is is gone, it won't grow there. And here's the thing is Jesus actually references this in the New Testament when he says that salt is good unless it loses its flavor and then it's not even good to be trampled on. Because why? That salt where you're trampling, nothing's going to grow there. So you had the opportunity to be salt. Lot's wife had an opportunity to be salt, but she wasn't. And so God says, I'm going to make you salt, but it's going to be bad kind of salt, 
and it's not ever going to work. You're done. You're dead. Your, your life and bringing life is over. It's done. Which again, guys, by the I think we should know this, understand this, but to say it, the reason God puts us on this earth is to be life and light to a lost world. That's the primary reason. It extends beyond anything else we're supposed to do. You're supposed to be life and light. And when that no longer happens, you become wasted salt on the ground. That's, it doesn't matter what you do for work or all those. Those are all details that God gives you opportunities and works out things. But the, but the big picture is we're supposed to be life and light to this world. And Lot's wife said, I'm, I'm not going to be that. You still get to be salt, but no good. So the Lord rained down <clears throat> fire. Abraham gets up early that morning, verse 27. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he stood in the Lord's presence. You know why Abraham gets up and runs out and looks over this? Because he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't know where Lot was. Did God save Lot? Did he not? He doesn't know. Only thing he knows is he looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace, wondering where Lot was, what God had done with them. But here's the key. Here's the sentence. But God had listened to Abraham's request and, caught, and kept Lot safe. I don't think God kept Lot safe because of Lot. He heard Abraham's request. Now, here's the key to this. I think before the cross, that was a much more possible, plausible course of action. I don't believe after the cross that's as plausible. Because why? After the cross, we have access to the Lord individually. I can make choices individually, and so I'm held accountable much more individually than in a group context or because of somebody else like would have been in the Old Testament. So even though I do know that my grandmother prayed me out of circumstances and, and, and kept God hounding me over the years, um, I am very much more up to my own choices and devices in after the cross than I would have been before the cross. Because grace is even freer. It's, it's, it's easily accessible in comparison to uh, before the cross. And so according to Abraham, he, Abraham's request, he kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plains. So here's four basic things that I want to push to us here. The first thing is it can get bad enough that God is done. It just can. We don't like to think about that. In fact, we built a whole Christian context in America today where that's not even really that acceptable to talk about. I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that um, there's been different times over our country's history where bad things have happened like 9-11 and stuff like that where the church, some of the church world has said, hey, this is God's judgment against us. We need to pay attention. And I'm a little uncomfortable going straight to that anytime something bad happens. Um, because I don't necessarily know which ones of those are judgment, which ones aren't. I am definitely not in the camp that says they are not. Okay? I just don't know which ones are and which ones aren't. I don't think every time um, a, a, a place gets hit by um, a flood that it's God's judgment. Right? I believe that, that God says it rains on the just and the unjust. And so I don't think it's always judgment. But I do know two basic things. God does use um, <clears throat> weather in judgment against his people, including droughts or storms or things like that. And we do know that God uses military um, fight and, and battle to bring judgment on people. People groups, groups. So I don't know, was, was 9-11 a, um, 
a, a hand of God's judgment on our country? I don't know, but I would say this. I wouldn't bet against it. I, it just, there's too many qualifiers that say that would look more like something that could be a possibility than it couldn't be. There's just there's too much evidence in the Bible that God does that stuff. And here's the other side of the, this story is why I wouldn't bet against it is because we have pushed God so far away from us that God, at the very least, God's not protecting us like he used to it because we don't want him to. We don't want him around. We don't even believe you. Just get out of here, God. Just get out of here. And he says, I don't think you understand what you're asking. No, I don't want you. Get away from here. Get out of here. I don't think you want me to actually leave. And then finally he backs off and we go, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken us? You know, it's, it doesn't make sense. But I do know Scripture shows us over and over that there does come a point when God is done. And that's on a personal level with us. And that's on a, on a group level. And I do believe that God judges nations when nations turn against God. I, I've, I've talked about this a, a little bit over the last few weeks, and our, our staff, we've talked about it a little bit. I do believe that our country is coming to a point where um, that the church is being separated from the real church and the not real church. When I was in China years ago, there was an above-ground church called the Three Self Church. And that church was approved by the government, the communist government. It couldn't preach about Jesus, couldn't preach about forgiveness of sin, couldn't preach about the blood, couldn't preach about Jesus coming back someday, couldn't preach about uh, freedom in Christ and forgiveness and all this stuff. It was accepted by the government. Well, we're having the exact same thing in our country today. There's becoming um, an acceptable dialogue and group of people called the church that you're not allowed to talk about sin, things like um, um, LGBT issues, things about uh, sexual issues, anything. Like, I mean, for a church to get up nowadays and just say, if you're having sex outside of marriage, it's a sin, it's, that's a very not common thing. That's not the acceptable story. We're supposed to embrace all this stuff. We're supposed to do all this stuff. But there's this church that's becoming the, the acceptable church, and I believe that the real church is going to have to go underground to some level because you're not going to be accepted anymore. It's beginning to be to the point in our country where some of the things that I'm saying right now this morning, I can be uh, put in jail for. The, the, the bill that I talked about last week, House Bill 1032, it says in the bill that if you don't go by the rules of this bill, that you can be held uh, uh, liable, that you've broken the law. So if you call a boy that says he's a girl, if you call him he instead of she, because he chooses that, you can actually be held um, in, in um, threat of, of breaking the law. This isn't just the school's going to be upset at you. It's against the law. There's this, there's this guy on the internet who I really like. The guy I saw it. He's an agnostic. I, I think he used to be more of an atheist, but the longer I listen to him, the more he's changing. Um, he's becoming agnostic more, and partly because he's traveling with Ben Shapiro a lot and, and things like that. But his name's Jordan Peterson. And I would suggest everybody listen to this guy. Uh, specifically males, listen to this guy. Um, but he saw a guy, and he, he talks a lot about what it means to be a man and how the society's trying to change that. And he was, he was kind of had a following and things like that, but then all of a sudden Canada, that he teaches at the University of Toronto, Canada comes up with a law, and they made it um, a law that you have to call people by the pronouns that they choose. And if you do not call them by the pronouns they choose, and as a university professor, he's on the front lines of this. And if you don't call them by the pronouns that they choose, you can be put in jail for it. Do you understand what I just said? You can be put in jail for calling a boy a boy. 
You can be put in jail. And so he said, I'm done with this. He goes and, and to the Congress, he starts speaking. He's doing things on TV and saying this is against law. And he says, regardless of whether you feel it's okay to call a boy a, bo- a girl or a boy, he said, that's not actually the issue, although that's part of my issue. But it's not his issue. He says the problem is when the government says, I have to. But guys, we're going down that road. America is right behind. We're going to be making laws like this. And so this is the thing with this is when a country does this, God judges the entire country. When we make laws to kill babies the day before they're born, God's going to judge the country. This isn't somebody that's doing it. It's the country that's doing it. And God's going to judge us as a country. That's a good, that means all of us. That means even the people that don't believe abortion is right. We're going to be judged. So, so here's the next step of this. We know that it gets bad enough that God, literally God just says, I'm done. That's what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Second thing is we often choose, and this is where you'll start balking if you're not careful. We often choose to be right in the middle of it. You say, well, I'm not choosing to be in the middle of all this stuff. I think so. More than, more than we would immediately accept. God said to, I mean, Abraham said to Lot, Lot, what do you choose? I choose the plain. Then I choose Sodom. Then I choose to be connected to the people. And then when I'm rescued, I don't want to be rescued. All these things were choices, choices, choices along the way. So the third thing is, is what, what if God stopped it all? And this is where the hook happens. This is what God was working on me about. Well, he's been for quite a long time. But this is the question I would ask us. If you say, well, I'm not choosing to be a part of this. I'm not choosing. Okay, so then what if God stopped everything? He cut it all out of our life right now. Anything that was not from, any, from him, anything that was hindering him and our relationship with him, what if he destroyed it immediately? Right now, right now, boom, destroyed it. Everything in our life that is outside of God that we haven't given to him, that doesn't belong to him, that we keep away from him. Let, let me go back to the simple thing I was talking about earlier about cussing. What would he have to do to get rid of that? Cut our tongue out? What if he did? You say, well, God's not. He destroyed entire people groups with fire from heaven. You literally think something like cutting our tongue out would be outside his scope? You say, well, I know God's not going to do that. I'm not saying God's going to do that. I don't even think God, it's a silly subject to address, except for the fact that it gets to a deeper truth with us. What if God did right now? Because this is actually an assessment of the question I asked at the very beginning. How do we really perceive serving God truly is, and then what are the compromises that get into our life? Well, what if God actually did what we verbalize in in a passive kind of way? What if God actually did that stuff, took it all away? Took it all out. Hollywood would be gone. <whistles> Nothing. I, I'm not joking about that. Hollywood's gone. There's no such thing as the stuff we're watching on TV or the things we're listening to. There's no such thing as half the places we go to. See, this, this is one of the things we talked about this yesterday with men's breakfast. Um, uh, one of the guys that was talking was talking about some of his addictions and things like that. It was great. It, it, it was great. It was one of the better. Uh, testimony things we've had. We got to talking about this, that alcohol really is the, the most dangerous plaguing things in our, in our country today. It's, it's the most destructive force in our country today. And you say, no, I believe there's a, it's, it's not. In fact, one of the things that um, a couple of the guys there that had that have struggled with alcohol and been alcoholics 
in, before in their life, they said that, that uh, one of the things with getting over addictions is getting over addictions like heroin and stuff like that is easier, actually, than getting over alcohol addiction. It's way easier because of the way it affects your body and your mind and everything else. But this is the thing that I, that I see is constantly happens is we fight for our right to drink. Sex trafficking, fueled by alcohol. Domestic violence, fueled by alcohol. Most crimes, in fact, there was a couple cops sitting at the breakfast yesterday, and they said that, that all of the things that happen in the criminal world are connected to drugs and alcohol. Every single one of them. There's none that are not. And yet we will fight to the point where now it's becoming a fight in the church world that as Christians, we want to drink. We want to drink. Now it's become a discussion as a pastor. Should I be allowed to drink? I can tell you right now, I, I wouldn't go to a church where a pastor was drinking. I don't, I don't care. I'm, that's, I'm not, I wouldn't. The Assemblies of God is, is a very, very conservative group compared to a lot of the, the, the church groups and, and denominations and fellowships out there. Assemblies of God is one of the most conservative. And right here in this city, we have Assembly of God pastors that drink very openly. They have no problem with it. And yet they're talking to people in their congregations that are alcoholics, that are trying to get off of this stuff because it's destroying their life. And they're defending their right to do it. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. If you're defending something, and I'm saying legitimately that destroys other people's lives, you really need to think about that. You're defending it? I defend my right to pray. It doesn't destroy people's right, life. We do this stuff. The, the hook that, that we, we, we are part of it. It's actually part of us. When I say earlier that we choose to be right in the middle, we say, well, I don't really think so. I know I'm separate. I'm in the world, but not of the world. Really? How much of it of our life really looks like Lot that we're actually connected with it, connected with it, connected with it? I, I was thinking about this with the youth group doing the media fast, how challenging this is. And the youth group's doing great with it. They're doing awesome. I'm proud of them. How difficult it is to do that stuff sometimes. Why? Because it's so much a part of us. I would ask any of the adults in this room, join the youth group, do a media fast. Cut everything out. Everything. No Netflix, no movies, no Facebook, no internet except what you absolutely have to do for work. Nothing. Cut it all out. Could you do it? Some of you start shaking as I say it. And DTs are happening. Guys, how much of this are we really connected? What if God just really stopped it all? I mean, cut it out right now. Cut anything in your life out that is not under the blood of Jesus and connected with the Lord and pursuing him. And then the fourth thing is, who are the modern Abrahams? And this is, this is where I want us to, to get to is, who are the modern Abrahams, the people that say, no, I'm not going to move down there. I'm not going to connect my life to that. I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to do this. And this is what God has been convicting me of. I, I, I watch more and more programs that have cussing in it. It doesn't do anything beneficial for me. It just gets cuss words in my head. That's all it does. If I didn't ever watch the show, would my life be worse? Think about what I'm saying. Would my life actually be worse? I didn't see that new movie. Oh, no, the horror. Would my life really be worse? But we justify it. And then it just puts junk in our head. It just puts junk in our spirit. 
And then we got to work through that. And that's where, that's where the problem is. Let me, let me show you a statistic that I'm not actually trying to prove what the statistics is. I'm going to try to prove something else. This is Barna Research. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness, um, <clears throat> a witness about Jesus. It's 95 to 97% in all groups, in millennials, um, boomers, old agers, everything. In all groups, <clears throat> 97% believe that uh, being a Christian means you need to witness. And they also believe, same 97% believe, that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Okay? So that means basically everybody in this room, we know that um, part of our faith is witnessing, and we know that the uh, best thing for somebody is to know Jesus. Okay? Statistically, it means pretty much everybody in this room. All right. For millennials, in particular, they feel equipped to share their faith. For instance, uh, 73% of all millennials say they know how to respond when questions are raised about the faith, their faith, and that they believe that they are gifted in sharing their faith. 73% of all millennials believe that. This is higher than the Gen X, which is 66%. Boomers, 59%. Elders, 56%. Okay, so down farther, next part of the, the uh, research. Despite this, now listen to this, despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. They, 97% believe that sharing your faith is part of being a Christian and that the most important thing that can happen to you is knowing Jesus, 97%. And, and 73% believe that they are very well equipped and accomplish this. But almost half, 47% of all millennials agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong or immoral to share one's personal beliefs if they already have another faith. You talk about a disconnect that literally makes no rational sense except for one qualifier. And here's my qualifier. That's not the millennials' fault. You know the millennials are the, are the younger generation, the 20s right now. That's not their fault. Why? Because if they know that sharing your faith is part of this, they feel confident they could do it, and the best thing that can happen to somebody is accepting Jesus, but they feel it's morally wrong to do that if they already have another faith, then somewhere there's been a disconnect about how they have been taught what salvation is. This is not connecting to a church. This is life or death. And that's the, what they don't believe. This is not life and death. It's just a really good idea. It's just a really good plan, and I'm good at it. I can share it, and I think it's important. We should be doing this. Unless they have another faith, and then their faith will get them wherever they're trying to get to. And that's not true. So basically what they're saying is, you can go to hell if you already believe something else, because I think it's wrong for me to, to help you with that. Somewhere they don't really believe what salvation truly is, and that is that we are, we are submitting to a holy God. We are unsaved, lost sinners that need the blood of Jesus Christ to save us from eternal death and temporary death. We need salvation because he's God and we're not. And that's the part that somewhere gets disconnected in the story. And this is what I've been talking about over the last few weeks is because the church has presented a Christianity that is not about repentance and salvation. It's about come join our club because we're the coolest church in town. And that will get people killed. 
eternally. Why don't you stand with me? So here is the point for all of us. God, what do I need to change? What do I need to change? Rather than God saying, I'm going to step in and burn everything to the ground that's not for me. There's nobody in this room that really wants that to happen. You may think you do, but you don't. Instead, say, God, don't come in and burn it down. Let me repent and get it right. Let me repent and get it right. Let's pray. God, we come before you, acknowledging that you're the king. And Lord, I pray, I pray for me first. I pray for every one of us in this room. Lord, if we've got things like Lot where we're still connected, God, convict us. We want to change it right now. If we've got things right now that we have not given to you that's not under your blood, that we're still connected to, we're still attached to, that we're still, we're still, our heart is still fashioned after, Lord, forgive us and help us to cut those ties. Lord, I don't want to hold on to anything spiritually, emotionally, attitudinally. I don't want to hold on to anything that is going to hinder my walk with you. So, Lord, I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me about being lazy about things. Forgive me for attaching my heart to things. Forgive me. Lord, I pray that for every one of us in here. Forgive us. Wash us clean. God, I I don't think I have the same kind of authority that you gave Abraham over Lot right there. But whatever authority I have, I pray right now for our church. Pray for every person in this building. God, whatever's going on in their lives, reveal it to them right now. Show it to them and be merciful. God, don't let them keep hiding stuff. Don't let them keep hiding it. Don't let them keep defending. But Lord, help them to get it under your blood and let you be in charge. Jesus, you're the king. You're the king. We're not. We're created. You're the creator. Lord, we repent. God, help us to, to, to truly be able to turn around and walk away from the junk. In Jesus' name. We break any kind of controls in our life, any kind of addictions and, or pornography or any of these kind of things. God, break the strongholds right now. Any kind of perversions that are they're trying to get in our mind, our spirit, break the, the strongholds right now. We repent. Jesus' name. God, so I pray for I pray for everybody in this room this week. That as they're going through their week, anything that they are a part of or connecting to or anything, <clears throat> God, that that when they're involved in that, I, I assume they have to be willing, but Lord, that you will illuminate to them this is wrong, this is harmful, it's sin, it's destructive. Lord, illuminate that to them, convict them. And Lord, and, and, and all of us, myself included, and then help us to repent of this stuff. Help us to repent in Jesus' name. God, help us not to keep turning around and looking back. But separate. Separate in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, we're going to be talking about how you can engage in ministry. We're going to have actually... Things you can write your name to. Say, I'm going to sign up for this. I'm going to do this. I think we've come up with some pretty good plans, some pretty good ideas here. But the reason I spoke this before that is because I believe that the number one hindrance to us not really witnessing to people is because in our 
deep in our spirit, we're not where we need to be with Jesus. I believe that's the number one thing. I think there's other things. But the number one thing is, is there needs to be life exploding from us, and it comes naturally then to verbalize that. And the reason that we don't is because sometimes it's not where it needs to be. And so as you're processing this week, I'm going to be praying, God, show us, show us, show us some stuff, okay? So before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you a chance to let somebody know Jesus loves them. Maybe pray for somebody, maybe talk to them. God's going to give you the chance. Do the best you can. Tell somebody about Jesus. He's going to honor that in your life. It's a guarantee. So shake somebody's hand, hug their neck, tell them how glad that you are that they are here, and uh, we will see you Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your day.